Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, in your opinion, what's a movie that took film to the next level? Something that by the time you finished watching it, you went, whoa, movies can do this? I mean, my answer is kind of a traditional answer for people our generation, but I mean, it's it's just the truth for me and my personal experience. It was it was Pulp Fiction. I saw it when I was twelve or thirteen at the time, and I'd seen Reservoir Dogs at by that point, but Pulp Fiction was just something new. Like I didn't know you could make a movie like that. People don't really think of it as an anthology film, but it is. I mean, so much to the point we did this opening question once: favorite anthology film, and. No one thought to say Pulp Fiction because we just don't think of it that way. But it's it's just such an experience. It just flows. It just tells stories in a way that you've never seen before. I mean, that just tells stories you've never seen before with such rich characters, um, the way it plays with time and all of that. And, you know, I always loved movies and I always had a sort of abstract uh, feeling of like, I want to do something with movies. But it was at that point where I realized, oh, movies could kind of be anything. Again, in the abstract, you don't like you know somebody writes these things, but watching Pulp Fiction, like oh, somebody wrote this thing. Somebody really broke the mold doing this thing, and I want to do that. And I want to see more movies that are as bold in breaking the traditional structure of what we think movies are. And I mean, so much to the point that I have a Pulp Fiction tattoo on my arm. And um, yeah, I, I know it's traditional. It's a lot of people say it, but Pulp Fiction was the movie that kind of opened things up for me. It's tough for me. I mean, like part of me wants to say, if I'm thinking of the first time a movie did that for me, I mean, the answer is Fantasia, but we talked enough about Fantasia. And in a similar vein, the Beatles Yellow Submarine, uh, I know was something that, you know, I got it as a kid. And it was the first time I think that, sure, it has a narrative, but during those sequences like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds or anything like that, uh, I remember just seeing images and sounds that conveyed a feeling rather than had literal translation of events. But if I'm thinking about a movie that really opened my mind, it is, I'm afraid, another, like Tom just said, you know, in terms of, a, you know, a, a air quotes basic answer. I was very into theater. I wanted to be an actor. I was very into musical theater. I had found out about this show, Nine, uh, a musical, and I heard some songs from it, but I didn't know what the story was or anything, and I was asking my family, and they said, well, it's based on this movie, Eight and a Half, so I went to the library and rented Fellini's Eight and a Half, knowing nothing about Fellini, and not really knowing much about foreign cinema at all, and I just remember watching it and this overwhelming feeling of, like, it just it just felt like nothing I'd ever seen. You know, there was a story but the story was secondary to a feeling. And it was just translating emotions into images. And not everything made sense in the moment. 
you know, it was something that I could go back to. And I think that Eight and a Half might have been the first movie where I watched it. Uh, I was probably like 13. I watched it. I wasn't able to understand it, but I wanted to go back and watch it again so I could understand it. And that was a very cool feeling. And that's kind of been the thing that we've been doing the rest of our lives is that, is going back and, and understanding things. So um, Fellini's Eight and a Half uh, really was just such an important film to me and really changed what I thought uh, cinema could be. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we examine the legacy of an avant-garde short film from 1943. Dr. Sabina Stent joins us for Meshes of the Afternoon. Our guest today is a freelance culture writer uh, who I'm very excited to have on with a real expertise on this topic. Uh, Dr. Sabina Stent joins us today to talk about Meshes of the Afternoon. Sabina, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh, and don't forget, not just freelance culture writer, Eddie Munson, super fan. Yeah, <laughs> just like how much like, yeah, oh yeah, love Eddie. <laughs> love Eddie. Still, still recovering from that strange things finale so <laughs> yes quite a lot it's been a hard week we all are well not yeah. mike because he doesn't enjoy fun but you know. <laughs> well that's i think gonna be the the fun of, of this episode is that uh you know i i would like to say and i don't mean to speak for you dr Stemp, but but you know i think that uh with tom and i you know they have the expression within everyone is two wolves and i think mm -hmm. we're gonna be kind of your two wolves because i'm very interested in in uh experimental film and, and surrealist filmmaking talking about uh, Maya Darren and Jonas Mikas and all of that. And Tom is very interested in 80s metal and Beavis and Butthead. So we're going to be pulling you in different directions <laughs> here in terms of where your heart lies. We're awesome. gonna be, yeah. Gonna be... <laughs> it's like perfect. These are all my favorite things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so much. Have you seen the new Beavis and Butthead? Oh, of course. I've watched it twice. <laughs> I, am, I am waiting because uh, this sounds very weird. Uh, Beavis and Butthead is a family tradition in my home. Oh, awesome. Every year on Christmas, my parents and I would watch Beavis and Butthead do Christmas. Yeah. So I have been waiting until we could all gather like a wholesome American family around the television and watch these two 90s idiots launch themselves into space. I'm very excited. Oh, it's it's worth the wait. It's really, <laughs> it's really good fun. I haven't laughed so much in ages. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> You're going to right, right, right off the bat, too. Like yeah. they just right off the bat, it's like they haven't missed a beat. I mean, Beavis and Butthead, you know, do the universe quite fitting with meshes of the afternoon. You know, yeah. I was watching this movie and I was immediately transported back to uh, Beavis saying, I don't want to die in a butthole. I dream of that every night. <laughs> you know, dreams, you know, death, you know, some, there's something there. I don't know. I think Mike Judge is a big uh, Maya Darren fan. It's a one to one is what I'm saying. It's a one to one. <laughs> Every time we cover a film that's outside of Tom's like usual wheelhouse, I always think, "What's he going to have to say on this episode?" And I'm always surprised. I mean, you can, you can bring everything back to everything. I found, you know, I've I've given lectures and I've started talking about ones that like 
and something or other. And then I've gone completely off topic and I've ended up talking about the MCU. And then I've worked my way back to like a 1940s, like surrealist Peturier or something. So I think, yeah, I, yeah, everything is related. Everything is relevant. You know, there's nothing. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, everything's relevant because we mentioned Eddie Munson. He said he plays master of puppets. And what shirt does Beavis wear? He wears a Metallica shirt. Come on. It's all, it causes a wheel. And, uh, yeah, I think one of the first things Mike ever said to me when we met was he's like, you're like Harvey Picar. I'm like, who is that? And he goes, you just have this ability to ramble and somehow bring <laughs> everything back to the original point. And I go, All right, hey, I'll take it, man. Yeah, but I'm so excited to have you here to talk about this, uh, this particular topic, especially because this is one of the films when we were doing the show. Uh, this was the film that I kept thinking about and being excited for. Um, not just because, uh, obviously, I, I, I am a big, you know, we watched this film. I remember seeing it for the first time uh, in, in freshman year of college. It was one of those, like, throw you in the deep end film school films, and I just was immediately struck by it. And, uh, and so I've always had a love for it. But also because in the first season of the show, the National Film Registry, you know, we're going year by year, they picked kind of the traditional canonical films, you know. So we were doing Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Star Wars, Citizen Kane. And I have absolutely nothing against those at all. I love those films, but those are the canon films that show up on every AFI list and on everything. And what I do love about the National Film Registry, uh, especially this year, what they start doing in 1990 and onward, is this recognition that film can be more than just a straightforward storytelling device. And the inclusion of this film in the registry in that second year, I thought was, was so great because uh, when you look at an, an American film Institute list or any of these best movies lists, despite the fact that this is one of the most uh, significant films in American cinema history, in, in you know, cinema history, it, it's so influential. It shows up in, you know, you know, remnants of it show up in, in music videos for decades since not this never makes those kind of lists. It's not, something that the general public tends to focus on and i'm so glad that something like this exists that we can talk about it and include conversations about things like meshes of the afternoon and down the line david holzman's diary and we get to talk about um jonas mikas and 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 stan i always go to say bracage brackage is the actual pronunciation right am i wrong here i think so I don't, I'm not, I'm not an expert. That's, that's <laughs> fine. No, no. I just, I, I was only going off of like textbooks for years and just yeah. saw the spelling and went, oh, it must be Stan Bracage. And then I heard someone in a documentary say Brackage and I went, I guess that's, Ooh. I guess that's it. I don't know. He's, he, he'll come up because he's intertwined in all this. And I think she threw a refrigerator at him, a refrigerator at him once. So, you know, he, he's a part of this too. But, um, I'm so excited to talk about this film and, and, uh, to have you on because this is really one of your outside of uh, 80s metal and 90s MTV cartoons. This is one of your areas of expertise. Is is you have um, you are a, a doctor of of is it it's women's surrealist is the is the topic. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, um, I I actually didn't do any um, my Darren as, as part of when I was at university. I, I came to my my Darren afterwards because I was more. Um, called you know like visual arts but visual art like non-filmic visual arts mm-hmm. I, I did even though film kind of intercepted you know here and there but yeah so there there are like lots of similarity Maya Darren obviously even though she herself was never like many women like 
involved in the movement. She never kind of wanted to say, I'm a surrealist, I'm this, because obviously sometimes it wasn't, you know, it was kind of a divisive movement for women. You know, some women didn't want to be associated with these men who weren't like the best characters and um, didn't want to rein themselves in that way. And she was kind of, you know, she was like, no, my work isn't surrealist. It's just, it's my work. It's kind of expressive and it's, you know, artistic and it's, it's more, but there are, there are definitely similar themes for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we get further to how we each came to this film, where we saw it the first time Mm -hmm. uh, and why it's important, let's talk about what the National Film Registry had to say. Maya Darren, a Russian-Jewish immigre who came to America in the 1920s, and her husband, Alexander Hamid, crafted a 14-minute experimental film in 1943 that today is acknowledged as one of the classics of avant-garde cinema. Reminiscent of film noir in style and multi-layered narrative, the film and its symbolism required the audience to have a sense of curiosity and patience to interpret the fragmented imagery of everyday objects, a flower, a key, and actions walking upstairs, looking out a window, within sequences that intersperse dreams and reality to create Darren's brand of feminine poetry. So that's what the National Film Registry had to say. And I I do think that that label at the end of feminine poetry speaks very much to what you were just saying, Sabina, about how she didn't view herself so much as a surrealist and and was essentially just trying to create poetry with, with images um i want to dig a bit more into you talked about when you were working on you know your your field of study you weren't that focused on, on darren so so how did you come to to her work uh what was your first experience with either this film or just uh, maya darren in general if um, you recall yeah um i think it was even i think when you work on something as i work on something you're never fully done <laughs> with a topic and i think even though I complete, when I did my PhD, I was like, well, there's still so much that I want to look at. I feel like I'm not done with this yet. And so through, I think, I don't know if it was through the filmic side, um, I just kind of kept, you know, reading. And I've always watched like a bunch of films anyway. So I think it was just through kind of natural uh, curiosity. Um and that I kind of came to her. Um, so it was it was a little bit afterwards, but then I was just like, well, there's, you know, I was immediately like, this this woman's fantastic. <laughs> you know, she's absolutely awesome. I just love everything about her film works. I love what she's doing. Um, I love, her, you know, the kind of the way she expresses herself through film um and I think that's such a and parts of me think sometimes oh it would be great I I kind of wish I'd included her but then I think she's such a you know you you can just use you know she's just so interesting as as like her own thing and I think you know what she does is fits into the remit of like you see like the film registry said it fits into the remit of of, uh, film noir fits into the remit of avant-garde cinema fits into the remit of women artists and I just think she's such a fascinating character and I feel that even you know I I haven't worked on her like fully if that makes sense I've done like the odd thing on her I just think she would be a really interesting kind of (laughs) subject to tackle maybe like in the future um 
because I just think she's so fascinating and I just love what she does through film and and how she use you know utilizes like um movement through film that makes sense now I'm gonna play a fun game uh okay. for the listener at home because we know what question I'm gonna ask I've already uh, asked Sabina how when she first saw the film let's play this game Tom when did you first see meshes of the afternoon okay you know what He's going to he's going to try to trick me and say, "Oh, we watched it in college." I don't believe you. I don't believe you for one second cuz I don't remember seeing this movie ever before. I watched it <laughs> last week for the first time, and Mike's not going to convince me otherwise. I don't care what you say. So, one of the things we had a professor in college and our listeners love when we talk about film school. It's their favorite thing and they definitely don't tell us to stop. One of our professors, Lisa Robinson, um, you know, God love her, you know, right off the bat, she kind of did this thing that, uh, you know, one of the things you find when you start studying film in college is there are the people who are in film school because they are total hipsters who have watched, you know, have their Bergman box sets and stuff. And then there are the people who started studying film because, I don't know, I liked uh, Batman. And, you know, I want to I make, uh, make a movie where Batman fights Spider-Man. Like, you got those guys. And she, like, right off the bat was like, I am going to weed those people out. Because within the first day, she's like, so here's Unshanandalu, and here's Meshes of the Afternoon. We're just going to back-to-back, I'm going to hit you with these, and you're either walking out of this room going, holy shit, hell yeah, or you're walking out going, I hate every minute of this. So we got to watch those sort of back-to-back, and I just remember vividly, I mean, I obviously, you know, Unshanandalu, the, the Dali Bunuel film, is this this formative film that is this talked about with but there was something about Meshes of the Afternoon I think struck me I remember uh, because there was something about watching that and the fact that Darren isn't just directing it she's in it and the fact that you know Unshanadalu is is big it's because it's Dali because it's well they can kind of do whatever they want they can have a crowd in the street gathered around a guy on a bicycle whose hand is coming out of a box they can do anything they have the resources meshes is so striking and then you realize that this thing was probably made for for table scraps they were filming it in one house doing it all themselves her and 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 hamid who it's it's the discourse around how much influence one had on this film rather than the other is really interesting uh because of course when you talk about this film it's a maya darren conversation um but obviously Alexander Hammond is, is credited as co-director on this, or he's, you know, he's involved in this. Stan Brackage suggests that, in fact, Hammond had much more to do with this film than Darren did, which, given that Darren would later put a voodoo curse on Brackage, I don't know if that's just sour grapes. And obviously Hammond ended up having his own incredible career. Alexander Hammond wins an Academy Award. Uh, in the 60s for a movie called To Be Alive, which was uh, played at the 1964 World's Fair and uh, got a bunch of nominations, which obviously, uh, you know, for making much more straight-laced kind of pictures later on. The origins, but just to look at it and realize, like, this was just a couple who got a camera and on a whim made something uh, together that looked like nothing you'd ever seen before. And decades later is still kind of credited as changing the way we talk about film just is so remarkable to me and then obviously she goes on to make five more films and more and i think 
back in 2011, MoMA dedicated an exhibit to her, the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. And they basically just took their basement area, hung projector screens all over, and played all of them at once. And you just had to kind of walk past, like, Atland and and uh, uh, Meditations on Violence and just kind of surround yourself in them. And it's remarkable that you could uh, do all that. But all that to say, Tom may have seen this for the first time this week, but also I think we watched it freshman year. But at the time, it was a matter of, you know, did it did it stick around? And, and now, obviously, uh, years later, Tom is much more invested in the films of people like David Lynch and things like that and starting to well, see the pieces come together. To, yeah, to be fair to me, because obviously I have to defend myself, I did stick around. I wasn't I wasn't trying to make Batman versus Spider-Man. I remember exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> that was a real I thing. I stuck around. Yeah, that was a real thing. I stuck <laughs> around. And now, I, yes, I am now more invested in this stuff, too. I, I mean, honestly, to the point, talking about, you know, the influences and everything and how it's still, you know, today. I kind of was joking about Stranger Things before, but, like, honestly, this season was so kind of clearly a, a ripoff of Nightmare on Elm Street. And Wes Craven wouldn't have the ability to do what he did if he didn't have the cinematic language that Maya Darren helped create with her with this movie more so than the dolly you know ushan on because this one feels kind of like the way lynch does like there is it is abstract and very odd and doesn't hold your hand or anything but there is like kind of a straight line essentially where you can kind of just sit down and like watch it and get it it's not just like oh cool now i'm cutting an eyeball which hey you know uh, you know it's heavy metal like let's cut more eyeballs i'm all for that but I love Italian horror movies. They really took something from Dali there. Um, but, you know, I now have the ability to look at a movie like that and go, okay, yeah, I actually do see where a lot of people who probably saw this when they were in film school or, you know, like Wes Craven saw all his first movies, making porn for Sean Cunningham, um, <laughs> where where it could kind of seep in and go, oh, I, I, I can see... There's a new avenue to this to to cinema that wasn't really around before. You know, I like I know Hitchcock t- tried to get a big sequence with Dali in Spellbound, but that was you know not really successful because they kind of like, well, no, that's going to be too much. You have to do a little bit, and also it's Hitchcock and Dali. I feel I really wish I could have seen those two guys talk. Just you know, complete sidebar. Salvador Dali's just ranting and raving about how he's like super into fascism and he you know women are garbage or whatever while alfred hitchcock is just shoving his third chocolate cake down his throat and going mm, yes 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 now what about what about all the stairs um i'm sorry i don't know it's 10 in the morning over here. <laughs> i love that your film professor like had like you know Unchian Andalou and meshes of the afternoon because when i was i think when i was um in college or just after high school when I did this short college course I was like the most surrealist film is Unchian Andalou and there was no mention of Maya Darren at the time it was just like Unchian Andalou that's it and so and then you you watch it you're like hang on a second no this isn't sort of you know there was no mention of it because this was like in the you know 2000s or or whatever so um, and so I think it's just so great now obviously like Maya Darren is getting that recognition but I uh, I think that part of that, too, um, I mean, part of it was her concerted effort, but I also think there's something about if you're trying to show someone what you can do with 
air quotes, experimental film, right? And if you're trying to get someone's entree into that, Unshana Delu is, to me, not the way to do it. Because Unshana Delu, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the, the label of surrealist and how she fought it. And I think part of that is because with what Dali does, and I love Louis Benwell, but even to some degree what Louis Benwell does, is that their surrealist imagery it seems to be done in like a thumbing your nose fashion, like a confrontational, like, haha, look what we can do. Even the slicing of the eye that Tom alluded to yeah. is really just a confrontational image. Whereas what Darren does, and I think what Darren does that rolls over into what you see with Jonas Mikas, what you see with Stamp Brackage, what you see with Hollis Frampton, and essentially if you do have a passion for these type of films, she is sitting down and as opposed to Dali and Bumwell, who are being kind of teenage boys about it, and just like, haha, we can stick our nose in it. She kind of is the one that steps in and goes, No, hold on. This is serious. Like, I can I can use this. One thing I think is so interesting is is she talked about I was a poet, and I wasn't a very good poet. Because I was trying to put images into words, and then I discovered that I could just use images. And I think there's something about I hate I don't want to be uh one of these guys, because when you find I hate to say it this way. There's a lot of Maya Darren scholarship that's written by a bunch of either Brooklyn or Los Angeles white dudes talking about feminist language in a way that you're just like, I don't, buddy, I don't know. But <laughs> but there is something to the fact that like when you watch her films and you hear her talk about her films, because she's very candid about it, that there is this sense of, you know, when it comes to, to how we use language uh, to express ourselves, Language is a tool, and it was created by certain people and, and facilitates that communication in some ways better than others. You know, uh, uh, James Joyce identified that dilemma when he was talking about trying to use the English language to express Irish ideas and, you know, that challenge. What I kind of love about what Darren does with her films is essentially going, I'm going to take this entire, you know, language, this, you know, arguably like male-created construct of, of the English language, or any kind of language, I'm just going to throw that out. I'm not even going to, to play in that game. I'm going to use these images and these movements to communicate ideas and what she described as very feminine ideas, which is what draws her to dance, which is what draws her to voodoo later on, and essentially going, I am going to forego your means of communication because they're kind of inhibiting my ability to express myself. I think that's yeah. so interesting. And I think it's sometimes like even like when you're writing something, you find that like you have something in your head and you can't convey it onto paper. And it's sometimes you're trying to get what's in your head, like the image or the words. Yeah. Whatever. And it can be sometimes, and I say this as someone who writes, which is like the, the stupidest thing to say, but it can be tricky. And like for her, she was like, well, I'm just going to make film for her was the, the, the kind of the, the, the way she could get these ideas into her head into the like into the universe and and say well i'm not getting them onto paper i it's film is the medium for me and it's the medium that's working for me and it doesn't need to be like restricted to a certain thing you know it's visual language but it's it's cinematic visual language if that makes sense and 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 it's as you were saying like the the film it was made for like it was made for 250 dollars or something like that it's made for like 
peanuts at the time and there's that famous quote when she said I make you know I make my my films what Hollywood spends on lipstick you know that's a famous Maya Deren quote so um and she was just saying well you can do all this with like very little kind of money or funding or you don't need that you can just do <laughs> you can just do the do the films do express yourself through through this through these visual images um but again you mentioned Lynch Lynch you know there's a lot of Mulholland you know a lot of meshes ends up in Mulholland Drive you know the key especially and like um I've seen like people say Lost Highway as well but for me I always think Mulholland Drive like key is the biggest clue um and David Lynch I think he I think he said like um, meshes is one of his favorite films so you can absolutely see that um more so than than I think in Chien Andalou um and I think it's interesting, as you say, in Chiang it was a bit more in your face because, I mean, they were very sort of, you know, the eye is, you know, we're going to cut the eye. We're going to kind of, this is like disbelief. Now you're in the kind of, you know, we're going to kind of mess up everything that you think you perceive as, you know, this is it. Now. We're showing you this, we're showing you that. But I think meshes is done in a way and you're, you're kind of feeling, well, hang on a second, my, this is like, it's very much a dream state we're watching someone experience you know it's a bit more in a way it's a bit more um organically I want to say organically surrealist if that makes sense because yeah. it's it's a bit more richer Definitely. it's, it's rich yeah. and because you're talking about the, you know the surrealists were always saying well the dreams are the reality you know what we convey through our dreams and she does that she does that in a way that feels very layered it's very rich it's very and it and it feels like you're you're kind of, it's like when you're in a dream and you're thinking well hang on a sec um am I dreaming this because do you ever have that when you I don't remember my dreams very frequently but sometimes you're having a dream and sometimes you're like in the dream you're thinking well am I dreaming <laughs> is this is this a dream or am I awake and I've had that sometimes in a dream so you're kind of lucid but in your dream and it's a I think she she actually captures that extremely well <laughs> which is a very oh, yeah. kind of um difficult thing to do because you're like how on earth do you feel like you're in someone's dream and you feel like that with her you just kind of you feel like that and then then obviously she brings in a lot of other elements to it but I just I do think it's and it's again when you were saying like you know the kind of who whose film was this, and you get that a lot with even like Jermaine Dulac and and and, and something you know and our Todd and you know with the who whose film was the seashell and the clergyman you get that and and I think you know where women are concerned there's always going to be that battle <laughs> between whose film is this, um, but I think meshes is a very kind of female very I don't want to you know you don't want to generalize but it is you know with female experience film sure well, I mean yeah I mean to the point where where I was doing some research and finding out that there was any kind of like controversy of whose film this was I'm like I mean it seems very clearly this is coming from a female perspective and you know you know again that gets into deeper discussions about shit like that where you know David Lynch is one of the best at telling nightmarish stories about women in this in the world that hates women. You know, a fire walk with me, Mulholland Drive, obviously. Inland Empire. Um, it, it, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, 
I didn't. E- I wouldn't e- even expected it, knowing that like she made it with, you know, Hammond and all. I would have just. I wouldn't have even have thought. But then again, you know, it's it's the forties. You know, they definitely mm-hmm. like. Oh, that woman. She was definitely there to you know help her husband. You know, achieve his dream. Was just all right, guys. Come on, relax now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do. I do wonder if part of that comes out of like that. It was clearly the two of them working on this film in whatever capacity. And then the people who start raising the, well, actually, we need to talk about Alexander's contributions, tend to be the people like Stan Brackage. And to, I don't think Jonas Mikas as much, but, you know, to some degree, the people who were in that scene, mm-hmm. which calls into question, like, are they saying that in terms of, are they trying to overcorrect insofar as, is it a case of, well, the film was a collaboration and then their marriage came apart and they're like, hey, he should get some credit for this too because she's getting all the credit. Or is it a boys club mentality of the fact of the matter is, you know, my experience, which is not great, but my experience researching experimental film, I, you know, a couple of years ago did a film based in that world um, that was a huge success and definitely did not uh, die immediately after film festivals died in 2020. But anyway, I was doing research on Stan Brackage and, and Hollis Frampton. And the one thing you find is pretty much every man who works in that era of experimental film, that 40s to 70s era, every one of them tends to be a guy with a beard who just kind of talks very quietly and is very shy. And you could tell doesn't have a lot of social interactions. And then you listen to Maya Darren talk, and she is so bold and so compelling and so brash. And, like, you know, she's just uh, one of the people in this documentary I was watching. Um, oh, now I'm forgetting the name, but we'll put it in the show notes. But one of the documentaries I was watching, just like a couple that knew her, talks about like she just owned the room wherever she was. And she was just such a star in that way. And you do wonder if part of that is, you know, this this boys club kind of resentment of the fact that she was such a powerful force. So I don't know where the origins and, you know, are of, of that. You it's, know. More, it's more than just like she made the movie. She's in the movie. She's the literal face of the movie, which definitely yeah. has to drive some of these guys crazy. Because, I mean, even in the little bit of like kind of ancillary research I did on accident before this, like I read that this book wasteland that Mike gave me about horror and horror stories and cinema and all that coming out of after world war one and everything and how the surrealist movement really kind of got its start around that time and during the war and really after the war and how there is a kind of boys mentality thing to that. You read about, there were a lot of women at the time that got into that, but then kind of got abused by these men or they work was stolen or blah, 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 all that stuff. And they kind of got ran out. Um, they talk about how Dali was really just a fame whore. He really just wanted to always just be I the could, center of I attention. I could talk about Dali being a fame whore all day. <laughs> we could, we well, could like, do an episode on that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's in that book. They it so it kind of like fits how like Mushan Andalou is this very in your face like, look at me, look at me. I'm Dali. I'm the coolest guy in the room. But how the actual surrealist, even if some of them were a bit of misogynist shitheads were like, we don't like this guy because he's kind of watering down the whole movement. It's too much. He's making it about him. He's not making about the art where 
even those guys like definitely also have this thing with women where it's like, well, no, they're, they can't be doing this. We're the surrealist guys. We're doing this. And then she has the, you know, quote unquote, the balls to put herself in the, in the movie. No, we can't, we, we, we gotta, we gotta take her down a peg or two. And, um, I definitely think there was a little bit of that. I mean, it's the forties. I mean, women weren't making movies in the forties. I mean, how, like when we were at Alamo, how much, I mean, they were, but like, and also, I mean, around the same time, there was one in Germany doing it. Never forget. That's the, the other side of this coin when we have to deal with, you know, Dolly probably liked her a lot more because Dolly was a, dickhead nazi sympathizer so when dali um, went to america his he will he obviously dali wanted to like this is like something i could go on about forever but dali wanted to break hollywood and his he was so kind of it was like the whole thing with hitchcock he wanted to put he wanted to make spellbound a lot more graphic than it was he wanted to make like um kind of what was it something like you know nails go he, he wanted to make it a bit more kind of visceral he wanted to make it basically like a de- like a cronenberg horror film like he wanted to make the dream sequence very akin to that um they were like no we can't do this because it's too too horrific <laughs> you know whatever this is a hitchcock film it's not um but his nickname was like avida dollar because it was like an anagram of, <laughs> of salvador dali because they were just like he is so obsessed with money he just wants money he wants fame he wants glory and and it's like you say the kind of him he he was very kind of i'm the personality i'm i am surrealism i'm driving the movement and it and it wasn't all about him um and again, it's like when you were saying something um, about credit, where credit's due, you know, Lee Miller and Man Ray both created the solarization technique, the rayographic technique, and it's always attributed to Man Ray. And it's like, well, hang on a second, Lee Miller was there too. She was, <laughs> they both were there at the same time. They both discovered this at exactly the same time. They were both doing that. So I think there were some creative partnerships that did better than others. But I think in general, the, the way women were kind of, photographed or painted and you know certain characters in the movement were a lot a lot worse than others um so it was in terms of surrealism you had like a some women said they thrived and other women said well you know and other women you know obviously the art some of the art speaks the art now when we can see like women are coming in women are now having the exhibitions women's surrealists are having kind of the glory as it was and people have said we're fed up <laughs> we've seen all the male surrealists let's get on to the women who were making um brilliant art at the time but it's um i was thinking i was going to say something even like how um my darren she frames this in like the domestic space like this is a film you know it's in the home it's like a thing of you know the domestic space you know it's been ruptured essentially um and that's something like artists like Leonora Carrington did she you know painted in the domestic setting and the Medias Farah as well you know they painted you know like scenes in the domestic space and I think that's something that I don't want to generalize and say a man wouldn't do but I think that is definitely something like um probably a woman artist would do more and then you see like this this kind of you know the rupturing of the the kind of in the home as it was and i think that there's you're you're absolutely right and i think you know you look at the rest of her work um because one of the things when we talk about you know this this whole situation of her and hamid you know is that is that hamid kind of hamid kind of creates other films obviously but 
he makes some straightforward documentaries, The Library of Congress, To Be Alive. I love To Be Alive, but doesn't totally resemble this. And you look at what she does, and an argument could be made, if you want to make it, that her next film, At Land, but you you know it's it's essentially a you you could call it a sequel to matches the afternoon if you want those play in the same sandbox but then you keep looking and at what she does with meditations on violence or uh uh, oh my goodness the the private life of a cat thank you you know which is a just her making a documentary short that boils down to hey these weird little creatures are here and they just do their own thing um you know she starts everything she does every other film just seems to be going in a different direction of kind of pushing the boundaries of what you could do with this medium so if we are to you know say that they collaborate on this one i think that the thing that you might see and i think you've seen her work is it's not just about the actual technical camera work or anything but the perspective she brings there's an unreleased film well i mean it's released now but it was unfinished in her lifetime i should say that was shot at i believe the guggenheim Mm-hmm. Uh, what witches something or other? I should have had it written down. Yeah, witches cradle. Uh-huh. So witches cradle, yeah. and it's her, and it's credited to her and and Marseille Duchamp. The mm-hmm. you know, and it's basically her directing a film, surrounded by some of his artwork and his sculptures and all that. And so that I think is the perfect example of what you're describing. Where I can go see Marseille Duchamp's work. You know, they have it at the Museum of Modern Art. They I don't know if they still have some on display at the Guggenheim. I haven't been to the Guggenheim in ages, but. I can go see those sculptures and I will see that one way, but just the manner with which she chooses to photograph it and to capture it and to have characters moving around it and make movement part of that capturing. It's a different perspective on that work. And I think that that kind of speaks to what she does so well. And and you're describing, you know, within the domestic space and things like that, the manner with which she, rather than necessarily do what, in this film in particular, uh, rather than do what Dali would do, which is like, I'm going to create things that you will never see, you know, anywhere else. I'm going to have ants crawling out of somebody's hand or anything like that. I promise we're not taking a Shannon Deluda task on this episode. It's not to totally no, no, I will. Everyone should I will. <laughs> I recommend it to everyone. Yeah. I'm like, everyone needs to watch it. But we're just saying, watch my Darren as yeah. well. <laughs> I, I think what she does is she takes things that, as you know, are familiar. Yeah, and manages to bring a new perspective of, yeah, you can have a character walking upstairs. Everybody's filmed somebody walking upstairs, but the very manner in which she does the movement of the camera as she hits either wall, it's it's that perspective she brings to it and that vision that I think makes it so special. I mean, that's 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 the more like, I guess to say, realistic way of doing dreams, which is (laughs) it feels real. Until you think about it and go, well, wait a minute, this little thing was off, you know. Yeah, I'm sure we have dreams where, you know, whatever ants are crawling out of our hands or, you know, whatever insanity Dolly would put out. But, like, a lot of the times it's just, like, shit we, at in the dream, we don't really think we're dreaming because, like, oh, this obviously makes sense. And then we wake up and go, wait, what the fuck? 
because it's That's real. That's not how my because, house is laid out. Yeah, you dream about stuff that you know a lot of the time, or yeah. people that you know, and you're like, well, hang on a sec, did that actually happen? Did I have that conversation with that person? And like, you know, you wake up and you think, well, hang on a sec, but did I see them the other day or not? <laughs> you know, did we did we talk or did did we do this or were we in this environment? Because that happens. Like, it's it's we dream of things that are familiar to us. But Unchi and and Lou, the ants in the hands. That's like that was masturbation. That whole thing was like because there's a french saying that like ants in the hands is like feeling randy feeling you know <laughs> fidgety that's what that's what it was so you know they were just being like boys and like yeah we've got to put this in we've got to you know <laughs> you feel like that to some extent but um and also in and shannon to do it's more disjointed in a way scenes leap from that to that to that to that in in meshes of the afternoon everything feels much more narratively linked you know everything yeah. moves and, and like flows as it would a dance and I think that's why it was so groundbreaking because it wasn't it was the first avant-garde like American narrative art house film because it hadn't been done like that normally you see you know something like Angelou it's just it's just it's various scenes that make sense as a whole but they don't link in that way and she linked everything and not only does she link it, I think, you know, one of the things that she does so well in this film that carries through both in mainstream cinema and uh, in experimental film is the understanding of patterns and establishing familiarity where she's repeating images. Yes. She's basically, to put it in, in horror parlance, she doesn't necessarily rely on jump scares. You know, no. she's not just throwing a weird image at you at once. I mean, you know, it's this comes along later like... um I, this one's not in the registry, but it should be, but like Hollis Frampton's Zorn's Lima, mm -hmm. which is basically just, I'm going to show you the alphabet, and then every once in a while, I'm going to swap out a letter for an image. Mm -hmm. And by the end, these images, without going like, this represents this, it's not like waves represent the letter H in any way, but you just now in your brain replace, you see waves and go to letter H. She so effectively kind of uses images whether it's the knife the key the record player she repeats images and sort of eases the viewer in to these certain images and these certain objects so that when it turns around when there is a moment that is jarring you know we've seen the key the key is in her hand we know we were familiar with that and then it comes out of her mouth and we go what you know it just throws you off and it's more unsettling i think like, except you know, the image that always sticks out to me—not that I'm saying anything new—but is the obviously the the figure, the black veiled figure with the mirror on the face. That stuck out to me the first time I saw it. Gets repurposed a million times over. Uh, I remember it in like the early 2010s, a Janelle Monae music video just uses the exact same figure. But how they do it in Scrooged? They do. You're what? right. And the Muppets, Muppets as well. The Muppets. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that you spend the whole, you spend a good chunk of the movie seeing the figure from behind so that you as the viewer, your brain is already going, okay, I got this. It's somebody in a black hood. It's somebody in a black, I got it. You are already comfortable with the air quotes, surreal imagery of, oh, there's a figure in a black. And yet, because it makes you so used to that, when it turns and you see the mirror face, it jars you much more than I think if that character was just introduced in one split second of Black Veil Mirror Face. You know, it does something where it eases you into the dream reality 
so that each shift feels more distressing in a way. And it's very like the, sorry, um, the you know the unconscious experience that she was yeah. talking about, like the whole of the film is. And then it's like, well, hang on a sec, what is that telling me? <laughs> and yeah. Especially in the dream, it's like, well, hang on a sec, what is this? What is this? What does this mean? <laughs> and it's like when you wake up from a dream and you're like, what does this mean? And and obviously it was like being confronted. You know, you see this. The, it's the self. It's go. You're going through all these motions, and then it's like, hang on a sec, <laughs> what is this? What is this? And I think that's what you know she does very well in the, in this one it's very you're being confronted by something and you're just like it can come up at any time and I think you we get very familiar we get very kind of comfortable as you were saying in this pattern of the film with the repetition with certain themes with and then it's like oh okay <laughs> what's she gonna do next and, and I think that's what makes the film so intriguing you know very kind of oh okay what is what is she trying to tell us what are we trying to what is is this about ourselves is it about her is it, you know it's about having a dream is it about the ego is it about the mirror stage you know because of obviously this kind of hooded mirrored uh thing and is it about the key to the interior is it about you know the knife um and then obviously the you know you have all herselves at the end around the dinner table this kind of she called that the conference scene didn't she something like that yeah. which I think is really great really great great um, expression um, so yeah I, I I and she keeps us guessing and it's like the beginning the man the mannequin hand takes the flower you know and it's not a human hand the first time I saw it I was like oh it's a human arm. And then when I rewatched it again, and I was like, "No, it's a mannequin." <laughs> you forget that it's all these these tiny little touches that just make the film. Um, and it and it's one of these ones. The more you watch it, the more you kind of see into it, and the more you you glean from it. Um, and I also like that she continued these themes with Atland, which kind of take this out of the home and into the the wild or into nature, as it was. So it's kind of you know the female body moving from the, the domestic into the, the wilderness which i think and, is a really good thing and with that land i mean one thing i was thinking about compared to this film mm-hmm. is that there's a moment in at land and i i hate i'm not disparaging the film i enjoy the film, but there's a moment in that <laughs> land that that i remember bugs me because it's not it, it's different than everything else she does which is there's one moment in at land where it's the two women on the beach playing chess which could very well have been something Ing- Ingmar Bergman went, cool, let's do that in a movie. But it's two, you know, with the uh, with Seven Seal, but it's two women playing chess, and the queen is about to get taken out, and Darren rescues the piece, right? And to me, that is the only time in any of her films, aside from, you know, The Private Life of a Cat or something, or the, you know, or the, uh, the voodoo film, that's the only time that I look at a particular moment and can confidently go, Okay, we get what she's saying here to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas with with meshes and Atlanta and the rest, you know, the rest of Atlanta, and especially later with, um, oh my God, the the last film she made, The Eye. Oh, I'm forgetting the title now. I'm mad at myself. Oh, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her 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 last, uh, the very Eye of Night. Like yeah. you do feel like everything else she does and the images she chooses, we can all sit down and have conversations about uh, what does this mean and what does this represent. But she's never going to actually tell you what anything means. She may be using dream language, you know, kind of inspired by that Freudian conversation about what dreams mean. 
But as you pointed out, Sweden, when you're talking about like what does the mirror face represent, it can mean a, a bunch of different things. And you as a viewer get new things out of it depending on where you are as a person. I think that too many people that work in dream scenes or dream sequences maybe get too literal about that Freudian dream interpretation and kind of keep thinking there's a language. There's a great, uh, if anybody has read Neil Gaiman's Sandman, there's a panel in that that I always remember, which is, uh, I believe uh, I, I believe it's Dream, the main character, is f- flying through the air carrying a woman, and she goes, well, you know they say if you're dreaming about flying, you're actually dreaming about having sex. And he goes, well, then what does it mean when you're dreaming about having sex? And he's essentially saying, like, there's not a one-to-one to this. Like, that none of this is not... And well, one thing she does so well in these films is there is no one-to-one in anything she's doing. There's well, no map I mean, to it. It's like... Uh... In, in, in Nightmare on Elm Street, when Tina's about to get killed and she's walking down the alleyway before Mike's favorite scene where he has the puppet arms, oh, God. she just turns around and there's just a goat. Why is there a goat? I don't know. Because she's dreaming. There, there'd just be a goat there. I don't know. Think about it. Whatever. Wes Craven's <laughs> just saying, whatever, just do whatever you want. I think that is the thing that really does make her stuff very, you know, effective is that it's not holding your hand, but there is, like, it's there. It's mm-hmm. not, it's all the straight line. It's right there. It's all, all doing all stuff for you to start working on. Because like for me, I kind of could make an argument that this is a movie about post-war stresses. I think that's how it's been described as well. So yeah, for sure. I mean, about a woman kind of her place in the home is about to be disrupted when the man comes home yeah just... i mean that, that was every woman after world during world war ii like they had to get used to being on their own go and get jobs or taking care of things their own and then oh no the man comes home what what is our place now um so even domestic violence and something like that so you know domestic yeah. violence is another nothing for sure yeah. yeah i mean but then you know there's there's a hundred other ways you could read it without it being wrong yeah i mean that's to me when i watched it this time especially thinking about her background i mean she's also an immigrant right she's also coming from i mean the the registry statement uh describes her as russian Mm -hmm. uh if you read her biographies now they identify her as ukrainian we're not touching on that one we already had to deal with that in the notes i'm not dipping in there but i say that to say she's coming from an eastern european background where even that identity isn't totally clear comes to america when i think she's five marries a a czech marries a czech artist and there is also elements in here that are very i think to me come out of a feeling of having to conform you know that need for conformity to a house that is both kind of where she lives but also kind of unfamiliar those images come through what always kind of drew me in a way even when i was young to modern art and and sort of non-narrative works I remember one thing that always sticks out to me is I remember being in, you know, being young and looking at, we were going to take a field trip to the Museum of Modern Art and seeing in a, in a textbook pictures of uh, Jackson Pollock paintings and Warhol's gold Marilyn and all of these things and going and really just having this thought of like, fuck you, like you pretentious jerks. Like this is all nonsense. My kid could paint that. And then we actually went to the museum and, to stand in front of Pollock's Autumn Rhythm or to stand in front of a Rothko. No, there is no direct one-to-one meaning. I can't look at every single line and go, well, this represents this or that. People can do it. There are people who get paid to do it. Uh, not well, but they do get paid. 
you know, to do it. And, you know, um, we, but to me, I think it's something about you look at these images that somebody has created and they unlock something in you where you are directly a part of that. And there is nothing objective about it. There is no single meaning to it. It's a conversation you're having with the work. And it's whatever it is to you at that time that can evoke something. Sometimes I look at a, a Pollock and I see, I can look at the patterns and the way that the paint moved and maybe try and put myself in, well, he was angry when he did this or he was, you know, said. And other times it's an entirely personal thing. And I think that something like Meshes the Afternoon, what makes it so remarkable is the fact that there is no one-to-one and is the fact that sometimes you can watch it and make it entirely about Maya Darren. And you can inform it with her background as an immigrant or her background as, as a female artist working in that space. And yet there are other times you can watch it. And even though she is the director and the star and, and all of that, where you can almost take her, the artist, out of it and just let it kind of wash over you and let the images connect to you wherever they do. And I think that there is a power to, I mean, any medium, but particularly with cinema, one of the things that we can do with this medium that I don't think gets done perhaps enough uh, is that it can speak with images. It can do something that can have an effect on you that you as the viewer get to participate in, that you get to contribute to that and what you bring to it matters. Too many films, especially now, I think are so linear and so narrative that you can, we, we complain about didactic movies on here all the time, but that you can walk out and own, there's only one possible takeaway you can have, but the best films, whether they're totally experimental or whether they're just weird horror films that we find, like you can walk away and what you brought to it affects the film. It's, it's, it's pure cinema. I yeah. mean, you know, there's a lot of movies that are great movies, but you could pretty much translate to the stage or have work as a book. But this, you know, as Sabina was talking about before, how she couldn't get like the words properly as a poet or whatever. So she started doing it as film because you can't get this experience anywhere else unless you literally take a nap and have the exact same dream that this movie <laughs> is. It's all about it's you, you just cannot get all of that anywhere else that you, you can get weird stuff on the stage. But it's because there's no editing, there's no, uh, you know, the, the production design is only limited. And even as limited as she was with a $250 budget, she's clearly got a lot more to work with, with, the, with her home, the beach, all of that stuff. You can't get it anywhere else. And also because she wasn't pandering to any studio or anything. Yes. She had no one telling her, you can't put this in, you can't not show this you can't you need to edit that out you you need to write this differently she was in control of like the whole narrative and and, yeah. and again that was the the most the purest most authentic experience of, of her work rather Absolutely. than you write something down and then you can re-edit it no this is it we're filming it this way yeah and absolutely it. and um just because i was thinking about it before when just how even in the weirdest places you can find the influences of this movie how much like you were talking about the hooded figure and how like you keep seeing it but you don't see the face until it finally turns around and it it kind of you have to you can project your own meaning onto it john carpenter does that in halloween mm -hmm. you know i mean who like 
nobody would have and like how many people that talk about this movie all the time i mean i got a michael myers tattoo you know there's how many people that watch these movies would ever say oh i think maya darren's meshes of the afternoon influenced how john uh kept michael at a distance because death is always a from afar death is always an abstract until it's finally in front of you and you can finally see its face Mm -hmm. who would have thought you know i i that's kind of always what i bring to this conversation well, is my weird brain connecting everything to film history connection that's for sure yeah because i always say to people who watch like horror films who watch like and who are interested in any kind of cinema i'm like well you need watch my dare and watch you know because you will find something in it and yeah. it's surprising like i'm so you know it's, it's brilliant that obviously you made that connection because i think some people a lot of people don't realize that those connections are there and they think yeah. maybe, oh, this is like an art, old art house film. I don't really want to watch this. And other people don't see that. But you can you can see it. You can see how her work has permeated various, various uh, films, very popular films. I mean, hell, I'm wearing a Suspiria shirt and Italian cinema might be, Italian horror cinema might be the most indebted to Maya Darren and the Surrealist because their whole thing is nightmare logic. Mm-hmm. Suspiria, you think about it, doesn't make a lick of goddamn sense, <laughs> but it's all about the experience of the colors and the music and like, okay, they're in a dance studio and she jumps through a window to get away from something that's chasing her and she just lands in a pile of barbed wire. Why is there barbed wire there? Yeah. I don't know, but it's <laughs> but it's a nightmare. It doesn't make any goddamn sense, but it just works it just somehow works like a nightmare somehow works until you think about it. And... I always think Suspiria reminds me of a lot of kind of the movement like Pina Bausch, who mm-hmm. was, do you know Pina Bausch, like yeah. the dancer? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of kind of, you see certain, like, you know, whether it's movements, whether it's visuals, whether it's lighting, whether it's something. I watched a film, I forget which film it was at Fright Fest, um, when it, Fright Fest was digital because of um, the pandemic a, a year or so ago. And there was one particular scene, I was like, that's from Pina Bausch. That is from Pina Bausch. I was like, <laughs> lifted. And, I, and it's like my friends who works on Pina Bausch was like, what, what, where, 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 where is this film? Um, so yeah, you just see how these like these things, you know, these whether either the artists or their work has just influenced so much, and and I think it would just be so great, you know, it's just so great when you see it in a certain film or you sit up in the cinema as I am prone to do, and go, that's from something, that's from so and so, you know, prod the person I'm with, that's from so and so, and um and yeah, so I think it's 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 really exciting and it's it's awesome when you see that when you see these little touches here there and it's yeah. it's it's also like you know you mentioned Pina Bausch one thing I was thinking of while watching this obviously Maya Darren was a dancer right? yeah and you know one of the things she does with film uh when she does a stu- uh, she has a film called a study in choreography for camera mm. and the whole thing she does with that is the recognition of the stage is actually a limitation on movement that because we're dealing with a, and as some we talked about, um, even in our more straightforward films that we've done on this show, when you look at what Fred Astaire versus Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire has the quote when he's making uh, Top Hat where he says, either the camera moves or I move, and I don't, uh, either the camera moves or I move, and I'm going to move. Gene Kelly, on the other hand, kind of goes, what's the biggest space I can have? Follow me as I'm moving. There's going to be scarves and all this stuff. And Darren is tempted to do that too. One thing I was curious about, was I was wondering, well, where is Martha Graham in all this? 
because of course Martha Graham, who ends up um, Alexander Hammond makes some films with Martha Graham, and Martha Graham's films are also in the registry years from now. But at this point, Martha Graham is doing. I think she's already staged Heretic and a couple of her other dances. And one thing I think is is so interesting is is it's very easy to look at these films and find that similarity. But one thing I find so compelling is when you look at Graham's work, especially around this time, she's known for positioning the body in a very angular way and, you know, her movements are a bit more sharp. Whereas Darren, there is, even in the most severe moments, there is such a flow to it. There is such a, a fluidity. Um, and I just think it's so interesting, not just looking at what influences what in a linear sense, but especially around this era, looking at what things are kind of happening concurrently. And we're almost forced to wonder, at least to me, like I'm forced to wonder looking at this stuff. Well, was she, was Maya Darren seeing what Martha Graham was doing at the time? Was that an influence or was it just kind of a, you know, or vice versa? How did these things either influence each other or just happen to spring up out of the same mindset and the same culture, you know, which I think they is were so both in New York around the same yeah. time, weren't they? So, you know, obviously they they probably be interesting to see if there was any kind of conversation between them or whatever. Because I think people were always aware of what someone else in their kind of field or in that kind of area was doing at the time. Um, but I I don't know if... She, I, I don't know. I don't know how. To, what's the word I want to describe it as? Um, with my Darren, you feel like it's a bit more. She's moving from like just moving. There's there's no kind of. There is thought behind it. Obviously, she's she's thinking the way she moves. It just seems like a non kind of rehearsed movement. If that's what it's just springing yeah. from her, and it's even like the way she, especially in Atlanta. I think meshes to a point is about like bodies and the unconscious and I think at land she just takes it a little bit further it's like that scene when she's cruel she's like crawling or dragging herself across the table and I just think that's just a, such a fantastic scene and then obviously she ends up on the beach and we're, we're more folk I think meshes we're more focused on like the interior and the mind and I think at land it's while we, we're thinking of like the interior we're also thinking of the body and the movements of the body it's like the body as land and meshes is like the interior as the mind if that makes sense i don't know i think that now i've just thought of that and that's completely rambled but <laughs> that's exception i think you're right and i think one of the things when you mentioned like the you know the way darren uses movement as opposed to um to graham one of the things and i could be completely i'm certainly not a dance history expert um and uh I, I, the closest I have is I sat through a, a lecture about Graham at Juilliard, and I think I picked up five things. And that's about it. So I'm not I'm not going to speak I to this. <laughs> but um, but I do think when you look at Graham and what Graham is doing with dance, what she's doing with that medium is in reaction to what had come before, and in reaction to the canon, in reaction to the history, and that there is a very direct recognition of what's going on and conscious choice to do something different right it's bob fossey kind of becomes kind of the same thing you know years later which is he looks at just how flowy everything is and how and he's like fine i'm gonna do very small movements like it's a conscious thing and there are filmmakers who have certainly made films that are 
in direct opposition to what's going on at the time. Many of the filmmakers who we who we like and who we admire are people who look at the landscape of film, look at the medium, and make conscious choices to subvert that. Darren is not being consciously subversive. She's not doing things because, well, I want to do something I haven't seen before or anything. It feels like in all of her work, she's simply going, what do I want to do? What what images do I want to capture? What images do I want to convey? I mean, you know, with um, with meditations on violence, she was just like, I'm interested in the Shaolin and the Wu-Tang, um, which, you know, is one of the two times that the Wu-Tang has been on display at the Museum of Modern Art. The other uh, obviously being the Rizza, the Jizza, uh, you know, uh, Raekwon, the chef, and so on, as we know. Uh, I could have listed them all. I choose not to. But, um, but we, you know. You're a coward. What if we did for the, that was just the rest of the episode. Uh, but no, I well, mean. There's it, like 50 of them. <laughs> all, their, uh, all their all the main members and their cousins and the <laughs> the guys they you know buy drugs from off the corner and you know guys they met at a barbecue once they're all they're all a part of it you know and red man uh anyway enough wu-tang clan yeah. talk for now we'll get there we'll, we'll 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 pick up wu-tang clan talk again on duck soup or something i don't know point is um but what she's doing is everything is just her doing what she feels like doing and what she wants to express and i think that that's something that's so interesting that sets her apart from not just Graham, but the other filmmakers at the time, you know, um, I worked on, uh, so I had a film that uh, ended up, as I, as I noted, I uh, submitted it to festivals and we got a bunch of, we got a, not a bunch, we got a handful of acceptances in February of 2020. And then the film festival just stopped existing <laughs> and this thing screened online twice. But the premise of the film was, it was a commentary. It was a, a basically a DVD commentary taking place during a bad, forgotten experimental film. And I immersed myself in, in Frampton and Brackage and all of the people that this fictional artist would be copying and very quickly kind of discovered how awful and boring and terrible it is to try and create a literal experimental film, like to try and create something that is that is in reaction to things or copying things or trying to go, well, this means that and this means this. It's the most exhausting thing. It's the most lifeless thing. And I do think that, you know, we talked about Unshandalu versus Meshes and how important it is to see Meshes the afternoon. I think part of that is, you know, um, uh, for example, you know, Tom, you talked about not remembering this from, from college and not really dipping into this world before, but seeing it through horror films that come along later. I think that for a lot of people, what keeps them away from experimental film or surrealist film is the is people seeing bad versions of it, is people seeing and having this perception of it's just a bunch of pretentious guys filming a bunch of weird stuff to be weird. It, well, or it's, you know, it's that and it's the thing that we talk about all the time with old movies in general. It's the lack of access. Like, where are people going to even see this? You're not going to stumble upon this after Netflix when you're done watching the John Wayne Gacy documentary, which I am watching. Thank you, Black Phone, for putting me down that rabbit hole. Um, is it good? Is it good? is good. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but I haven't seen the John Wayne Gacy thing yet either. So. It is good. I don't know if it's as good as his Bundy one because okay. it's shorter. But I think also because Gacy wasn't as like Gacy just kind of like fucked himself over and was just like, yeah, I just kidnapped a kid outside of a pharmacy, and everyone was like, oh yeah, John Wayne Gacy was talking to that kid, 
And then he just admitted everything to the cops. And you're just like, oh, this guy was just a fucking idiot. Okay. Um, but you're not, you're not going to get this unless you actively subscribe to Criterion Channel, which only people that guest on this show actually do. <laughs> You're not getting access to this stuff. So people get it in their mind that, oh, well, if it's hard to see, it must be homework. It's on YouTube. It's yeah. on YouTube. It it's on YouTube. our YouTube channel. We, you know, we'll upload it too for folks. But oh, I, think I would this... love to see this in the recommendations on YouTube after somebody watches like some guy get a firework to the nuts after well, 4th of July. Or something. But you know yeah. what? You know where it is coming back and where a lot of the stuff comes back, which I think is very cool is so much and uh spoiler alert for our audience wink wink in a later segment i'll talk about this more uh tiktok of all things so True. much surrealist stars coming up in tiktok you know obviously cecilia condit had a huge revival uh because of that with possibly in michigan getting weirdly sampled by the youngins on twitter uh you know when you're not uh when you're not wearing a suit to minions 2 you're quoting transgressive video art from the 80s uh, it's a weird time, but I do think that part of it is I think that when it comes to, you know, for a long time, experimental film was tr was viewed by a lot of people as homework, you know. Mm. And Scorsese, uh, there's that essay that goes around all the time where Scorsese was talking about foreign film and how Americans don't watch foreign films because they think it's all pretentious for homework. I think that, you know, so much there's a huge hurdle to get over with experimental film because so much of it is uh well first off so much of it can be bad because so much of it is made by the stuff that gets platformed in museums the stuff that has the outreach can often be stuff made by guys who have friends in the art scene who are making stuff by you know curated by a bunch of people going yeah man dig i get it yeah and you're like i don't know what we're doing here you know sometimes you'll be in in MoMA or whatever, and you'll walk past a video installation and go, this is incredible, and you'll walk past another and go, I think this is just footage of an elephant dying, like, backwards well, and forwards. I, I'm not sure we're doing anything here. I think that's and, part of it, but I think it's a discussion we've had before, which is that as time's gone on, audiences are getting more and more literal. Hmm. People hmm. want everything explained hmm. to them. Like, we joke yeah. about the A24 model of horror, but, like, that's the kind of thing that people will allow themselves to say is good horror because at the end of the movie, somebody can look into the screen and say, well, actually, it's about men. Um, <laughs> I haven't even seen the movie. I like Alex Garland, but I'm going to take you to task right now because every time that trailer played and it's like, what are you? Men. Okay, great, Alex. Um, but <laughs> gen general, genuinely, it's like people are it's, – it's a problem now. People can't ex ex accept anything that – needs to be thought about you can't have anything that isn't open-ended everything has to be you so these kind of things fly in the face of everything we're getting in mainstream art now or even like even just the even the stuff that you would have never thought people would watch before how many people watch documentaries now but it's all kind of well, here's a thing that happened, and we're going to explain it to you, and everything's happy, and blah, blah, blah. Nobody wants – you can't have an open-ended thing anymore. Well, know? that's – you know, to the point, uh, Sabina, I was wondering about you. I mean, you obviously, in addition to your scholarship, you lecture on this topic, right, about surrealism. Yeah. When you're speaking to people about – I mean, do you find – I mean, obviously, if you've got an audience, in most cases, they're interested in the topic <laughs> to start with. Just, but... me, just me talking to an empty room. 
<laughs> but do you do you find that it is do you find there are certain preconceptions about uh surrealist art or experimental film? Do you find there are certain preconceptions that prevent people from engaging with it? And if so, how do you kind of get people past that? What how do you help unlock that? I think I've been kind of very lucky because a lot of my because I don't lecture in the university, I lecture like um, freelance and I, I'm invited to places to talk. Um, and it's been audiences who've, who've willingly like wanted to be there or who like the artist and they want to know something like an element of a particular artist's work or they want to learn more about the artist in question. But the only time I was up against something was I did a lecture at a university and it was like um, it was like an introduction to surrealism. And I gave like a very, it was like a very, it was only like an hour or so lecture. And it was like, just, you know, introduce like women's surrealists to these, to, to, to the, um, to the group who don't know, you know, they, they just want, you know, it's part of the kind of the course. It was like a summer course. So I gave a talk and um, I tried to include like a bit of everyone, you know, Lee Miller, like photograph, you know, some some photography, some paintings, some sculpture. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go through various artists. You know, this one did this, this one did that. And at the end, I had someone was like, well, why haven't you spoke about Frida Kahlo? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, I thought I was going to learn about Frida Kahlo. And I was like, well she didn't consider her surrealist and I didn't include her because I, well, there wasn't enough time for one. And I just thought this, this group maybe was a bit more, you know, um, I don't want to use the word, but like canonically surrealist, you know, like, you know, people like Lee Miller and Mary Oppenheim and, and people like that. And, and it was like, well, in my books, it says Frida Kahlo. <laughs> and it was just me having like this castle. And it was, a, not to generalise, but it was a man. And it was just like <laughs> me having like, well, isn't it? And he's like, well, you know, I, I only know Frida Kahlo. And I said, well, now you know more artists than <laughs> you kind of think. And it was just like, it was like some people, they, you know, that was the only time I, I found someone who was kind of very closed off to the information being presented to them. Um, and he was just like adamant. I want to know about Frida Kahlo. You know, I was expecting because my book, I was like, well, you need other books. <laughs> I didn't say that. But it was kind of, you know, sometimes uh, you, 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 you know, that was the only chance I've had like this one person who was very kind of set in his ways and was very, didn't want to move on this topic. And I remember afterwards I saw one of my friends and she was like, my God, you know it's just so and it was funny because that afternoon that evening I'd gone to my friends um like it was like she gave like it was one of these Q&As about a book she'd given out and she had this one member of the audience and she you know she was talking that why have you written this book blah 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 and she was and she said well why have you written this book and she's like for all the reasons I just explained (laughs) No, so you might you might get this one person who's very closed off against something, and I think when you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you want to show them, they just won't budge. <laughs> and that's the only time I've ever found someone very very set in their ways. But other times I've tried to talk friends around certain films. Not necessarily this one. I try. I showed a couple of friends a film recently, and they weren't very enamoured by it. But the more we were talking about the film, the more they were like, well, hang on a sec. Now I read, I want to rewatch the film because I've got a different perception of this film. So I think 
certain times you have that, which is very nice, but then you might just get this one person who does not want to move. And I think with people like that, there's no arguing against. Then you can't argue with certain people. You can't force someone, try as you might to gently maybe say to someone where you need to move your, your boundaries a little bit. Some people just don't want to be receptive to, to various things and various informations. <laughs> now, it's their loss because, you know, it's this stuff is awesome. So <laughs> You, you said you showed your friends a, a film and they weren't yeah. receptive to it. Um, I'd ask what it is, but, oh, instead, but instead I want to believe that it's something totally out of left field and you've just been no, sitting here no, to make a nightmare no, maker. No, it was... <laughs> Porky's it, it was too. Nicholas, it was Nicholas Ray's in Lonely Place. That oh, what? <laughs> they didn't like that movie. Oh. They weren't. They then they're not. Ver- they they haven't watched a lot of film noir, and they weren't very. Um, I shouldn't say this in case they listen. They no. They they weren't. Or they're not our parents. Yeah, they weren't. You know, they I I adore them both, but you know, it was you know I was like this film's. I really had hyped up this film, and they weren't as enamored as I am by that fantastic film. Perfect. They want to watch it again. They do want to watch it again. And in all fairness, it took me maybe two, three watches to really, really love it. To like really love it. Because I think the first time I watched it, I was, I like it, but I need to watch it again. You know, but they were just like, "Mm, I'm I'm not so sure. But yeah, I I shouldn't say. (laughs) No, I got to say, like when you were alluding to like, I showed them a film and they weren't about, I was expecting it was going to be something like Dog Star Man or something where it's like, but wow, in a lot, wow. Well, I mean, <laughs> look, no, don't be embarrassed. Like, listen, that, oh, that's 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 not that's not bad. You, no, I, I, besides, like, I we can much worse. Plus, plus, we can sit here and and roast your friends, but since we have, <laughs> since <laughs> we since we have American accents, we must all sound like idiots to them anyway. So. No, they're American. They're oh, American. they are. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, oh, fucking <laughs> oh, then. <laughs> oh boy. God, God damn, well, then, God then, God then, just point. listen. Then the next time you encounter them, just do what people used to do to me. Pinch their nose and say, now you can't talk. Uh, <laughs> which is a joke I didn't understand for a good long while. <laughs> Apparently, Tom, we talk with our noses. That's an insult to Americans. Did you know yeah, that? that sounds yeah. No. That's I what I used that. to get, yeah. Which is which is also why any time a British actor, like on Doctor Who, has to do an American accent, they always talk like this. Don't know if you've noticed, but we overpronounce oh. our vowels. No. Always sticks the, the, out to me. The, the, the Cumberbatch method. <laughs> yes, this is. Uh... Well, now I have to. Go... Now I'm about to enter a multiverse of madness. <laughs> we love him, but there is just something about every time I encounter that I'm like, we don't. How loud do you think we say our R's, guys? It's a lot. But anyway, R. Uh, <laughs> but not the rest. Um, and I do want to say to what you pointed out about the the Q and A and the one person saying that. You know, we didn't touch much on uh, Maya Darren's interest in voodoo and the, mm. you know, and the mystic arts. I think because, quite frankly, that's a real tightrope to walk, especially now. Uh, you know, there's some, it's, it's, it's one of those things. Her, her obsession, you know, and fascination with, with Haiti and voodoo, where you watch any of her ethnographic films and go, she's trying. Sometimes, sometimes there's some shots or terminology that maybe wouldn't hold up today, but, you know, she's just trying to be as respectful as she can. But, you know, on the topic of voodoo and the mystic arts, I do want to say that I am now of the belief, you saying that, that what really happens is um, at any Q&A, whether it's at your lectures or down at the IFC Center or the Film Forum here, 
or even at a Comic-Con, there's just a spirit, an evil spirit that <laughs> inhabits one person and hijacks them. And you know the spirit is there because they always announce themselves with an ancient incantation that goes, this is more of a comment than a question. That's when you know the Dybbuk is in the room. Everyone fear. The jinn has arrived. Yeah, that's that's the time where you hope you could combat her voodoo with your own voodoo. So anybody who comes to the microphone saying it's more of a comment before they even finish than a question, you send them straight to just hell. Tackle, just tackle them. You hear like always an audible uh, from the audience. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, we uh, at this point, me and him, we boo when when it happens. <laughs> boo. I have a question. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any uh, uh, kind of motivational words for an aspiring? Artist? Boo! Done. <laughs> Take away. We want to get what, the, the. What was the what, what was the budget of your movie? Go to <laughs> Staten Island. Get the Apollo hook out for him. Um, as we always do, you know. Now we've started this new fun game. Uh, at the end of episodes, and I have to say, this might be the easiest round we've ever done, but let's do it anyway. Tom. How do you think Maya Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon fared at the 1943 Academy Awards? It swept the awards. It's the movie that Titanic had to beat for all sorts of the uh, nomination records. Nothing's ever been better than Meshes of the Afternoon. <laughs> so, yeah, the Academy, not quite ready for this one, surprisingly. Uh, very much a Marty McFly, you know, your kids will understand kind of moment. So, no, Meshes of the Afternoon was not nominated for any Academy Awards. It could have been nominated in the Best Live Action Short Subject category. Best Live Action Short won real, for which the nominees were Cavalcade of Dance, Champions Carry On, Hollywood in Uniform, Seeing Hands, and the winner, Amphibious Fighters. Now, for anyone wondering, no, none of those films have any ounce of surrealism to them, but it did tickle me to watch Seeing Hands listen to one of these very 1940s Look, that blind man is able to rivet metal. And just imagine if right next to that in the nominees was uh, Maya Darren taking a key out of her mouth and, you know. But uh, for context, the Best Picture nominees that year. Actually, Tom, do you have any, uh, I guess, 1943, what do you think won Best Picture that year? I don't know, man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's early. Leave me alone. (laughs) The Best Picture nominees that year were For Whom the Bell Tolls, Heaven Can Wait, the human comedy in which we serve, Madame Curie, The More the Merrier, The Oxbow Incident, The Song of Bernadette, Watch on the Rhine, and the winner, a film we have covered on this podcast, Casablanca. Okay, so for that's, any that's, context, that's fair. for anyone listening, just imagine you could, you could watch Rick and Ilsa uh, break up at an airport, and then if you were in New York City, find a weird cafe downtown and possibly see this screening there. But only if Maya presented it herself, she refused to let other people present her films. And I think that rules. Uh, That's wonderful to me. Uh, And if folks are in New York and want to see it now, uh, the Anthology Film Archives uh, does have a Maya Darren theater. And they do play her films quite a lot. Uh, The now late Jonas Mikas used to screen there. And in fact, in one of the documentaries about Maya Darren, you can see uh, footage of Mikas standing in an empty brick building that would soon become the anthology film archives talking about him making it a space to, uh, to recognize these artists in experimental film. And I'm happy to say it, the anthology still stands today. Uh, 
And in fact, in college, uh, a film that Tom and I worked on uh, played there, which was a very uh, surreal thing to experience. But if you're in New York, check out the anthology, uh, and hopefully you can see some of her work there. Or as we noted, on YouTube or anywhere, it's all in the public domain. She was not very uh, stringent on copyright, so you can kind of find it anywhere. Uh, Dr. Stent, Sabina, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you so much for for inviting me on and like have, having me on so early in the day because obviously there's a time difference for us. So. That's that's fine. I didn't need this at all. No, I'm good. I'm good. I didn't pound an energy drink at 10 a.m. We're rocking and rolling. Um, oh, shut up! You pound energy drinks at 9 p.m. This is true. This is, tr- this is true. Um, but no, we're so glad that you came on. You made the yep. time for us, as you noted, with the time difference and all of that. You know. Um, thank you so much. And obviously, uh, you are uh, welcome back uh, anytime in in future seasons, whether we're dealing with, you know, surrealism or whether you decide like, Hey, I'm just going to chuck all that out. I don't know. Let's do Mary Pickford's poor little rich girl, whatever you want. You know, you're welcome back. Um, thank you so much. And, uh, and everybody else stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the national film registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do at the end of each episode is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. All right, boys, time for our registry picks. A reminder to our listeners, it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. I alluded to this film earlier uh, on the episode, so for anybody who knew what I was uh, alluding to, it can't be that much of a surprise. We were talking about women surrealist filmmakers, obviously with Maya Darren and what that legacy is. And as we talked about, you know, there are a million directions one could go with that in the legacy, whether it's, you know, a David Lynch or a Wes Craven. Um, but my pick is a little more direct in, in that line, in that lineage. Um, one of the things that's so interesting for Maya Darren to make her films, uh, you know, she wasn't beholden to any studio, but obviously she did need some money. She did uh, receive, a, you know, some grants and she even tried to start a foundation to help fund experimental film. They could just never get the money together. Um, fast forward about 40 years. So we're talking 1983. A different filmmaker uh, is able to receive funding from the National Endowment of the Arts and the Ohio Arts Council to make a uh, to make a film that appears to be, in some senses, a musical satire of horror films. Uh, it depicts uh, two women being stalked by a masked figure named Arthur, except, of course, uh, by the end, those women dismember and cannibalize him. Uh, it's a film that just feels very radical, very out there, especially because the characters are singing all the time, little sing-songy voices. It's a film that came and went, uh, You may, if you were around in the 80s, you saw it played on the 700 Club, which criticized the film as uh, as lesbianic and anti-men uh, and anti-family. Would later play the Museum of Modern Art. But in 2015, it received a revival in the strangest of all places, TikTok. I'm talking about Cecilia Condit's Possibly in Michigan, uh, a surreal nightmare horror musical 
12 minutes long uh, that suddenly its audio in 2015 got sampled on TikTok. If you ever saw somebody doing a TikTok that involved, uh, you know, but it exploded and they all died. That's from possibly in Michigan. There's music possibly in Michigan that found its way on TikTok. I think it deserves to be in the registry, not just because I think Cecilia Condit is such an interesting filmmaker, and this is obviously her most one of her most notable works, and I think it is in line with what Meshes of the Afternoon does, and also is an interesting commentary on 80s slasher films and 80s horror films, you know, from a female perspective, which I think is great. But I also think it's important to be in the registry because it's a film from 1983 that somehow found a revival in the technological age and showed how film can be remixed and reimagined with new technology and with accessibility. So there's so many reasons to be in there. Uh, possibly in Michigan is my pick for the National Film Registry. Okay, so with my pick for the Film Registry, um, kind of going straight ahead on this one, dealing with, uh, you know, dreams and nightmares and all that, and kind of sideways mention, you know, kind of... T- discussed it a little bit in uh, the episode not exactly but you know i brought up a nightmare on elm street uh but that's in the registry i'd already picked it before so you know i'm actually gonna go with uh west craven's new nightmare because i think that one even more so than the original nightmare on elm street delves even deeper into the nightmare aspect the dream logic aspect how reality is kind of breaking down around have a camp in that movie I think one of the best moments in that entire franchise is when she's talking with John Saxon. And as it keeps cutting back and forth, you realize the setting has changed. And she's now talking to Sheriff Thompson and she's Nancy and she's in Springwood, actually. And fully, we're in dreamland now. I also think it's just a genuinely important movie in in cinema history because everyone gives Scream the credit for breaking uh, horror in the 90s and changing it and giving it a fire under its ass. But I think if Wes didn't warm up with a new nightmare and it's meta storytelling in that one. I don't know if he would have had the juice or even the desire to do something like scream. So I think if you don't have new nightmare, you don't have scream and you don't have, you know, horror for the next 10 years or whatever, which then changes whatever the next cycle after that is horror just in general is completely different without Wes doing a nightmare on Elm street, which then leads him to leads him to new nightmare and, you know, the man broke horror like four times in his career. Um, I think it's uh, also just, uh, you could also tie it to the very female centric fears that are at the center of Meshes of the Afternoon and New Nightmare about her fears of the, of motherhood, the fears of her child being in danger, of you know, stalkers and and just all kinds of stuff like that. I think there's a lot of connective tissue there, like we even mentioned, I mentioned in the episode that Wes Craven definitely took some stuff from Maya Darren in his work. Uh, so I think uh, New Nightmare should be in, in the film registry. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Dr. Stead for joining us. Next week, we're jumping into the ring for an essential Scorsese movie. Richard Newby is our guest for 1980's Raging Bull. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Register.